So, so last week we began this new series called Understanding the Bible. And our goal was to kind of move through each different unit or division of the Bible and sort of look at uh, what it can mean to us, what it can say to us, how it can apply to us today as Christians, how we can read that particular book or that particular section. And we talked about a lot of things last time. I'll just review a couple of them and then we'll move forward. Uh, but one of them was we looked at a lot of different ways people use the Bible incorrectly. And th these are the main three that we talked about. And as we concluded is that all these ways are sort of true, but they're ultimately incomplete, which makes them not very helpful. And so one of our goals in the class is going to be uh, teaching and sort of building a productive, helpful way of reading and interpreting the Bible. Because we believe the Bible is capable of asking questions like, who is God? Or how should I live my life? Or what are good rules for living? But not necessarily like a reference book where I can just turn to page 67 and look up the answer. So one of the things we talked about and again, this is just a quick refresher, was remembering cultural context, uh, thinking about our assumptions when we read the Bible, considering things like the language barrier, the fact that we're getting an interpreted or a translated text. So that's, that's a pretty important thing, as we'll see later. And uh, looking at, again, our overall goals of learning what it meant to them, understanding their context, and then looking through that and saying, so what can it mean to us? I heard a very important uh, thing somebody pointed out one time was that it can never mean anything to you that it didn't mean to them. That at the end of the day, it was a letter written to a particular group of people at a certain time, and it can't mean anything to you that it didn't mean to them. And so, as we study, we're going to look at what it meant to them. So, let's see here. So, Sorry, I'm flipping through my notes still. So, can you guys read this? I know we're a little bit further, some of y'all are probably further back. But even if you can't read it, you've probably seen little pictures in the VBS class like this, sort of breaking down the Bible into these different sections, right? Like we call it the law, we call them the prophets, the history books, the poetry books. Of course, the, I'll get over here and I'll, we've got the law, we call them the books of history, books of poetry, jokes, songs, proverbs. Major prophets, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, all the minor prophets that man's teaching us all about on Sunday mornings. And of course, over in the New Testament, we've got the Gospels, we've got Acts, all the letters to the churches, sometimes divided up the Pauline epistles and the general epistles, just like they are here. And then I would, uh, this graphic did it, I would put Revelation in a separate category, the rest of the general letters, for reasons we'll get to at the end of our study. Oh, hey, that was my bad. I didn't turn on both our mics. That'll be better. If you're listening online, you probably that's the first thing you've heard all night. So, probably hear me now. Um, so we've got these major divisions of the Bible, and we're going to start studying the Pentateuch. Pentateuch just means the first five books: Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. We typically divide the Old Testament up into those five, what we call the books of history, which are, like I said, Joshua, Judges. Ruth, 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Uh, sometimes Ezra and Nehemiah are included in there. Depends on who you're asking. And the books of poetry. And so we, so we typically divide the Old Testament into four sections. The law, history, prophets, and poetry. And so tonight we're going to begin unpacking the law. So I wanted to identify kind of one problem 
If you've ever studied the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, you might discover what I would call the first problem with calling it the law, and that is that very little of it actually is the law. In fact, if you've ever read Genesis, almost none of Genesis is the law. In fact, you have to get 60 chapters in before you even see it, the actual law is given. And so I want to kind of, we use this, but I want us to think about why we call it this. And, and again, the, the history books fall into this too, that we call them that, but they're not, that's not really a fitting term. We think of the law. We, if I say the law, you probably think of things like Leviticus. I've never said the law, and you've been like, oh, like the covenants to Abraham. And so this word that we get the law from, Torah, probably most really, I don't want to say more accurate translation, but a better way of thinking about it would be it really means teaching or instruction. Uh, it means guidance. And so when we think of law, we think of like the Constitution. We think of like reading state statute codes. If you ever read like a code book of state law, if you've ever had to do that because you got a ticket that you're trying to get out of, and you're sitting there like in section four, comma two, for the subsection B, and it's just reading this. And okay, there's parts of Leviticus that kind of feel like that, right? That kind of feel like you're reading a code law book. But most of these first five books really don't sound like that. And so we'll kind of unpack what that means to read the Pentateuch in light of sort of the law and some of the, the narrative books. I wanted to talk a moment. I got this other slide somewhere in here. I don't remember where I put it. Bear with me for a second. There we go. I wanted to talk about this for a second. So we have mentioned before the, the problem or at least understanding the background of the language barrier when we read the Bible. That we got the Bible in English. The Bible was first written in Hebrew and in Greek. Well, the Jews, when they divided up the Old Testament, they had three sections. They had the law, which looks like the same books we have, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. Then they had what they called the prophets, which included what we would sometimes call the history books of Joshua, Judges, Samuel, and Kings. And then they had the books of poetry, kind of that third thing down here. Someone, so why am I telling you all this? Well, they had the law, the prophets, and the writings. Someone read for me Matthew 5.17, if you can grab it. And uh, someone else, get Matthew 22.40. We won't look at all these. We'll just look at a couple of them. Uh, someone get Matthew 5.17 and someone else 22.40. Do not think that I come to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy but to fulfill. Thank you. Which one of those 5.17? And who's got 22.40? All these two commandments say all the law and the prophets. So... We have this funny thing where we call it the Old Testament. Jesus never calls it the Old Testament. And in fact, almost exclusively, they refer to the Old Testament as this, this phrase, the law and the prophets. And really, this was a phrase because it referred to these two, at least all these books right here. They're not saying that these are authoritative and these down here are not, or that Psalms isn't. In fact, if we were to do a study of how the Old Testament is used, we would see that the, the early church quoted Psalms way more than we probably do in our own preaching. But there was this shorthand of referring to the law, the prophets, and the writings by this phrase, the law and the prophets, which is why over and over when we read the New Testament, we see this expression, the law or the prophets. And uh, in some translations, you'll occasionally see the law, the prophets, and the writings, but that's only one or two times. It's in one of those passages of Luke, and I can't remember which one. But I say that because I, if I tell you you're reading a law book, that's going to change how you're reading it. If I tell you you're reading a book of history, that's going to change how you read it. And I, I say that because history is the one that we've kind of inserted that I think can sometimes uh, skew our perspective a little bit. Because if I say I'm writing a book on the history of the Civil War, you're going to expect one thing. 
But if I say I'm going to tell you about the family of Terence during the Civil War, well, that's a different thing. And so when we're reading what we sometimes call the history books, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, these are not exhaustive historical accounts in the way that they think of it. I'm not saying they're not real. Don't, don't misunderstand me. But if you went and tried to find another history book of the Middle East around that time, you might get like three references to David or Israel. Because we're talking about a community that's like this big, this little tiny corner of the world. And more importantly, they're not even telling you everything that's happening in Israel. They've got a purpose. They've got a specific goal. And so when we think of Samuel or Kings as really the same way we do Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, these prophets... Now we understand, well, Samuel didn't sit down and write the entire history of Israel under King David. What he did is he said, hey, let me tell you about the parts A, I was involved in, and B, that fit my goal in my writing. And as we've talked about, audience, the author and the audience and their purpose of writing is going to be the biggest, biggest things when we talk about context. Is understanding who wrote it, understanding who they wrote it to, and what was their goal when they wrote it. And like I, again, like we talked about last week, when it comes to genre, it comes to what you're assuming a book is going to tell you, that's going to shape how you read it. And so understanding what their purpose was is a big, big part of understanding what it means to us today. Um, questions so far? We kind of started off, hit the ground running pretty hot there. So I'll pause for a moment if there's any questions or anything that wasn't clear. Okay. Well, if you'll notice, when we keep saying this phrase, the law and the prophets, there's sort of an implied hierarchy here, and that is for a reason. Last week we mentioned that, yes, 2 Timothy 3.16 tells us all of Scripture is inspired, but not all of all of Scripture is as equally authoritative. Because some passage, not every passage is, and again, this is the problem with reading it like a reference Bible, not every single verse is good instruction on how to live your life. Now, let me be clear. It's all God-breathed. It's all profitable for teaching. But you can't go to one line. What was our example from Job 2.9? <laughs> uh, curse. Tells, Job's wife doesn't curse God and die. So Job's wife, not a positive example of how we should live our life. Useful, but not good instructions on how to live your life. Do not, if your husband gets sick, tell him to curse God and die. Please. Please do not do that. The other reason it's, I would say there is this intentional tier or hierarchy is I want to, I'll have you think about this in a New Testament context since we're a little bit more familiar with that and then we'll jump back. Think about when Paul writes his letters. We know who wrote them. I just told you they're Paul's. We know they're written to the church because thankfully Paul tells us and we usually know his purpose because he tells us I am writing you to tell you about blah 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 blah. But you'll notice Paul talks about Jesus a little bit. He didn't really talk a lot about Jesus and you'll notice he almost never mentions baptism. A repentance. Why do you think that is? He's writing to the church. Now, I'll preach on baptism sometimes, but to be honest with you, you're probably not going to hear me very often get up there and preach a whole sermon on baptism to a group of people who are already making the decision to be here in the morning, unless I know for a particular reason we have a lot of visitors or something. Because I have it on pretty good faith that most of y'all have probably been baptized. So Paul doesn't spend a lot of time talking about baptism. That doesn't mean it wasn't important to Paul. That doesn't mean we shouldn't be baptized. But if he's writing to the church, he's got a specific purpose. He's got a specific purpose in mind. And so, just like Paul's letters assume the gospel, and we know that because he says it in almost half of his letters, he talks about the gospel. 
He doesn't really elaborate on what that is because he assumes they know it. In the same way, when we get down here into Joshua and Judges and Ruth and Second Chronicles and Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther, all this knowledge of the law is assumed. And so when we study the Bible, one of the reasons in our series that we are starting with the Pentateuch, that we're starting with these first five books, is because these were fundamental to understanding really everything that, that happens afterward. And so when we go on and look at the prophets or we look at the Psalms or even when we look at the New Testament we see that the, the New Testament audience, Jesus' first disciples, are Jews. And would you believe that a Jewish male, I don't know how common this was, but this was an expectation, by the time they were made an adult at 13, they were expected to know the books of the law so well that if a rabbi or their teacher came up to them and just out of nowhere started quoting, say, Leviticus 5.16, they had to know Leviticus 5.17. And if they just picked up anywhere in the law and could quote the law, the student need to be able to finish the quote. Yes, and they do that on United Airlines when you find kids are all running. Do they really? All throughout the night. Really? Yes. Yes. All throughout the night. <laughs> so, if I hear you correctly, you feel like they read God's word too much on no, planes? No, on planes they do. I was trying to give you an out. I was just kidding. She said, yeah, they do. Well, I wanted to see it. <laughs> So I can't show up outside your house with a megaphone reading uh, Exodus 34 or something. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you ain't kidding. Um, but I tell us this because the law was just, I mean, it was incredibly foundational to not just the prophets, not just the Psalms, but all of Scripture. Again, we, we talked about this when we read it, that if you go to your table of contents, you really got two headings, the Old Testament, the New Testament. But no one really tells you, hey, if you read anything else, make sure you know these five books. But we really ought to. And so again, just thinking of that example of the, the average Jewish male who was going through that rabbinical teaching, that's how well they knew it. And so they taught, that's why Jesus so often says, you have heard it said, or you know, or in a very common phrase, we know that the law says dot, dot, dot. Well, if you and I read that, we'd be like, oh, I don't know who this we is, Jesus. You know that, and uh, the mouse in your pocket knows that. I don't know what you're talking about. Because sometimes we haven't really studied the law. Um, let's see. I'll talk a minute. If you've ever seen the Bible, uh, talk about the Sadducees. All, all the time we talk about the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Sadducees, just as by way of example, in Acts, or in Acts 23, 8, Matthew 22, 23 mentions this. They only accepted the law. So that kind of shapes how we think of whenever Jesus is talking to the Sadducees, it should impact, okay, well, what, what is maybe in Joshua through Nehemiah that is affecting what I'm going to think about what Jesus is saying that his audience, well, they don't believe, they don't accept. So again, this knowledge of the Old Testament, but particularly the law, will help us understand truth in the New Testament. So I'm going to go back to the other slide because I like it a little more, I guess. I think I had these in a different order than I wanted them to be. So who's even heard the, the, the word, the Pentateuch, before? I'll put it up there. That one. The Pentateuch. Okay. Okay. He said, I've heard it, but that's about it. So it just means the first five books are the five words. Um, sometimes it's what we talked about, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And as we said, the Jews called it the Torah, which meant sort of teaching, instruction, guidance. And we typically refer to it as the law. So, the first topic in kind of our series, Understanding the Bible, is understanding these first five books. 
So traditional author, Genesis through Deuteronomy, anybody want to guess? Moses, okay. I was like, man, that's, I didn't think that was a trick question. Yeah, Moses. Traditional author of Genesis through Deuteronomy is Moses. Um, there's probably some reliance on oral history. Uh, the Jews believe in something called the oral Torah, which they believe supplemented uh, the interpretation and the understanding of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Thankfully, did you know that your Bible includes a commentary on parts of the Old Testament? It's called the New Testament. <laughs> They talk about it all the time. One of the easiest ways of understanding what a particular passage or a section of, of it means is look, in, look at how the apostles use it. Look at how Paul uses it. Look at the way they quote it. It's very helpful to just sort of seeing how they, um, how they viewed both the authority and the messages in there. Just one I always think of by example is when at Peter's sermon on Pentecost, I guess it's on my mind because I've been studying a lot this semester. But at Peter's sermon on Pentecost, he, called, he quotes the Psalms like three times. And he quotes them as authoritative. He quotes them as instructional, as useful for understanding what God was going to do. I can't just, you know, just being honest, I can't tell you the last time I used three psalms in a sermon. It's because we, we probably don't view it the same way that they did. But we should. We should. So understanding the Old Testament is important. The New Testament helps us understand the Old Testament and vice versa. Um, questions about Moses and uh, authorship of Genesis through Deuteronomy. Okay, well, we'll keep going. Have you ever heard the phrase, speak what the Bible speaks or be silent when the Bible is silent? Have you heard that before? Yeah, it's a common, uh, I, think that, I think that's one of those things that dates to Alexander Campbell, but I can't remember. Uh, this is a very good biblical principle. It's also, it is itself scriptural, Deuteronomy 4.2, Revelation 22, 18-19. And that means letting the text speak for itself. We talked about this a lot last week. But as we read particularly the Old Testament stories, and, and maybe I'm guilty of this more than anybody else, but sometimes, and I know you guys, you guys probably heard me say this a dozen times, but sometimes I am guilty of learning the, the, the VBS or Bible coloring sheet version of an Old Testament story and then never going back and actually learning the rest of the Old Testament story. So, for example, uh, just recently on Sunday morning we finished Jonah. Most of the coloring sheets on Jonah stop around chapter 3, so you get to chapter 4, and you're like, wait, whoa, there's a whole Jonah too. I didn't know there was a sequel. No one told me about that. And so sometimes we're guilty of these preconceived notions or these assumptions. And the reason I like that phrase, speak where the Bible speaks, and being silent where the Bible is silent, Revelation 22 puts it, don't add to or subtract from the book, means you've got to be careful about your assumptions when reading, especially the Old Testament. I feel like the Old Testament, we're, we're guilty of this more than in the New. Uh, just for an example, if I go to the Old Testament assuming King David is a good king, King Saul's the bad guy, that's how I like him. I'm like, oh, he's the bad guy, he's the good guy. And then I get to the passage about King David and Bathsheba, that kind of makes me furrow my brow a little bit. Just, wait, wait a second, I thought David was the, David and Goliath, and you know, David and Jonathan, those are the good guys. What's, what's going on here? And so that kind of colors how we're, we're reading it. So, there's some stories there when we're teaching today. We used to sit around the old stove in the country store and we would hear people think, well, before the end of time, you won't be able to have winter and summer except for the bud and the trees. That's not there. Go back to Genesis when we don't know it. I mean, yeah, when he got off the ark, while the earth remained. Mm. That's true. 
So it answers the question for today. And then they say, how in the world did they get all those animals on? That's hmm. it's impossible. We don't believe it happened. They wouldn't wild. Genesis 9-2 answers that. So you bring up a good point, and that is the stories of Genesis. So one of the other reasons I like this particular slide I was looking at is sometimes we, we call this the law. We think of this when we think of the law. But if we know sort of the general outline of these first five books, we know this is about Moses. This is kind of, this is really the beginning of the law. Numbers, anyone want to guess what Numbers is about? Thank you, man. Boy, I didn't think I was asking trick questions. These were kind of just jokes. We're falling a little flat tonight. I'll polish it up and I'll try again next week. But yes, Kenny, that was my joke. The numbers is about it's about two sentences. Sentences are when you count. When you count, you use numbers. That's what numbers is about. But it's called the law because the Torah is called the law. Yes, yeah. It was the uh, the reason I say I don't totally love the name law. It has to do with the language thing because just. I don't know if you've ever done this, but just sort of when you got some free time, look at the way the New Testament, the Old Testament is quoted in your New Testament, and then go look at what it actually says in your Old Testament. I'm not saying it's wrong, but you'll see it's a little different. Because anytime you see the Old Testament talked about in the New, it's gone from Hebrew to Greek to Latin to English. Whereas our Old Testament now, we have like the old, old scrolls that are in Hebrew, and so we go straight from Hebrew to English. And so our old, if you can believe this, our Old Testament now is actually truer to the Hebrew in a lot of ways than sometimes the Old Testament gets rendered in our New Testament. Does that make sense? And so for things like the law, they have like actually like a dozen different words for law. And their word actually really meant more this idea of instruction or teaching or guidance. And when you think of a law, if I say, oh, I'm reading the law, you know, I think of like reading the Bill of Rights or the Constitution. <laughs> but if you read those books, it doesn't sound like Genesis 17 doesn't sound like the Constitution at all. Leviticus a little bit, but that answer? Okay. okay. That's what I thought you were asking. I was making sure. So, uh, as we dive in here, I wanted to spend a little bit of time talking about Genesis separately, and this is what I was getting at. If, if we're reading these, if you do a study, you'll see that there's a lot of things, a lot of things in Exodus through Deuteronomy that seem to go together that sometimes when you're reading Genesis, Genesis kind of feels like its own beast. And if you've ever, I always joke with people, I'm, I like doing textual studies. Like I like sitting down and just, let's study, for how many weeks we're going to study Exodus? Or we're going to study 1 Samuel. I've always told people, I said, I am not, anytime in the next 10 years, I'm not doing a study on Genesis. Because it would take us like five years just to get out of Genesis 12. Because there's just a whole bunch of stuff going on that is really different from probably the next few books and probably different from most of the Bible. So let's take a look at what I'm talking about here in Genesis. So tell me stories you know from Genesis. Just shout out some things you know from Genesis. Creation's in there. In the beginning, we got Noah and the ark. Cain and Abel. Adam and Eve. Yeah, that's a good natural flow from there. Adam and Eve. Got it. A woman to woman, a man to man. It didn't change. Yeah, that's true. Adam and Eve. So most of, I would say, really 
most of Genesis, and certainly Genesis before we meet this fellow called Abraham, really can kind of feel like a collection of stories. And when I use the word stories, I'm not saying they're not true. I've had someone get mad at me when I use that before. They feel like kind of almost more like Jesus' parables in the sense that they don't really seem to flow together to one narrative the way, say, Exodus through Deuteronomy does. Because if I'm reading Exodus, I see Moses going from one place to the next. I know it's, it's it, those sections read kind of like those history books we talked about. They read like you're reading, like you're reading a history, like you're reading one long story. The first half of Genesis kind of just jumps from one thing. Well, first there was the two people, and then there was their sons, and then they built this tower, and then there was the ark, and then there was. And so sometimes it's kind of hard if you're like, okay, what's what's going on here? What do these have to do with one another? What does Noah have to do with Abraham? What does the Tower of Babel have to do with Abraham? What does Abraham have to do with Moses? And so, jumping from this idea that we talked about, I said this idea, we talked about earlier, Moses being the traditional author of those first five books. Um, when is Moses brought into the picture? As a baby. And when is Moses born? Not yet. What, chapter, what part of the, the Pentateuch does Moses show up at? Exodus. So it kind of should beg the question, like, so where do you get this other stuff? Inspired writer, but there's also this idea of these were some, these were histories that were passed down for a reason. They were included for a reason. When Moses starts writing, Moses starts talking about the law. He starts talking about God's plan. He starts talking about God's promises. But a lot of the stories in Genesis are stories that are told to fulfill a specific purpose or to answer a specific question. And that's why I say I, I compare them a little bit to parables, not in the sense that they're, they're not true or they're fictitious. I'm not trying to say that at all. But in the sense that Jesus would tell parables to say, let me tell you why something is this way. And then he would say it. Okay, go to Genesis 32. We looked at this as an example last week. Go to Genesis 32. And then we'll probably look at uh, the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So I read all this, I read chunks of this last week. But if you're familiar with the story of Jacob and Esau, they're the rival brothers. Jacob goes away to the far country. He comes back. The night before he's about to meet Esau, he starts freaking out. He's like, my brother's going to want to kill me. He is going to take all of my people and all my wives and all my sheep. And so at, let's see, Genesis thirty-two twenty-two, Jacob decides he, he's going to go out and, and late at night he's going to go on this walk and he's just going to try to figure out what he's going to do when he sees his brother the next day and he's kind of freaking out. And he has this exchange with this angel. And there is what we would probably correctly or rightly call a pretty bizarre scene where Jacob wrestles with an angel. Uh, the heading of your text might even say Jacob wrestles with God. And we have a couple big takeaways in this story. One is verse 28. Your name shall no longer be called Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. And then the other is all the way down in verse 32. And again, a lot of the stories in Genesis are told in, this, in a similar manner to parables in that Jesus tells the story. And when he's done telling the story, he says, let me explain to you what this story means. Let me tell you what I mean when I say this. And we see this in Genesis 32. Genesis 32, verse 32. Therefore, to this day, the people of Israel do not eat the sinew of the thigh that is on the hip socket, because he touched the socket of Jacob's hip on the sinew of the thigh. Anyone want to make sense of that? It's kind of unusual. 
But in, in their code, in the practice of the people at this time, there was parts, as I'm sure you're at least loosely familiar with, there's parts they would eat, there's parts they wouldn't eat. If I'm reading this passage, this, the goal of this passage is not to tell me about what angels look like. It's not to tell me that I should wrestle angels if I find them, that I should be combative with messengers of God. That's not really the point. But the point, believe it or not, as weird as this story sounds, I would say twofold. But number one is when you see therefore, you know what they say about when you find the word therefore in the Bible? Yeah, that's a good way. Yeah. The other one is it should make you ask what it's there for. Yeah, you just—that's the statement version. I just always heard the question version. But he says, basically, I'm telling you this story to tell you, and this is why you don't eat the sinew of the thigh on the hip socket. And so there's this example story. It says, when he was fighting, he was touched in the hip, and for that reason, we don't do it. There's another pretty big takeaway that we'll see if we were studying Genesis. And that is that from this point on, Jacob is no longer called Jacob, but he is called Israel. Why? For he has striven with God and prevailed. And so a lot of these stories are included essentially to answer certain questions about why. How did the earth come into existence? Let me tell you what God told me about how the earth came into existence. That's how we get Genesis 1. Why is there sin? Genesis 3. Why is, why is Cain over there and have those people and they're all wicked and why are Abel and his family over here? Well, let me tell you the story about Cain and Abel. And so if you can imagine, and I'm, I'm getting a little bit into supposition here, but here's how I think of it. And I, I feel like this really is a helpful interpretive framework. We understand Moses wrote the Pentateuch. We understand Moses is the author. Moses doesn't come around until Exodus. So to me, I kind of think of Genesis as a prologue. There's a lot of stuff that happens in Exodus through Deuteronomy that lays the groundwork for the story that keeps continuing on through the prophets, through Samuel, through David, through Solomon, through all that. But in this little period of time under Moses, I can almost envision in my brain people asking Moses, well, why do we do things this way? Why do we do things this way? we got 40 years to wander around the desert, Moses. i got a lot of questions. And so Moses begins telling them, okay, well, Moses... We know Moses is closer to God than anybody else who pretty much who lived in this time period, spoke to God all the time, had revelation from God all the time. So Moses begins telling him, okay, well, this is why we do this. This is why we do this. This is why we do this. Here's another one. Uh, flip back over to Genesis 11. We're going to focus on uh, verse 1 through... Nine here for a moment. Probably heard this story before. But I just want to read a couple lines from it because I think this might sort of shape how we ought to read this particular passage. And the story begins, verse, chapter 11, verse 1. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. It goes on, it tells us, we're probably familiar with the story of Babel. They they come together, they decide they're going to build the name, build the name for themselves, bring glory to themselves, there will be this tower that reaches the heavens. We'll skip all the way down to how this story ends. We'll start on verse 7. Or, I'm sorry, verse 8. So the Lord dispersed them from there over all the face of the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, 
its name was called Babel because the Lord confused the language of all the earth. And from there, the Lord dispersed them over all the face of the earth. Do you want to... I gave you guys one in Genesis 32. Does anyone want to take a stab at what the purpose of Genesis 11 might be? Just from... Just, even if we're just reading the first and last verse. how God confused the language. The story starts, it says everyone spoke one language. The story ends, he said, and therefore, God confused the language of the people on the earth. Yeah. Certainly. Is this a, is this an instruction that we should never build tall buildings? Or that we shouldn't use, that we should not use according to verse 3, we shouldn't make anything with bricks? No, why not? Because that's not the purpose of the story. And so when we see, and I, I start with, I, I hinted this a little bit uh, last week, but I didn't get to quite get into it. When we get into the history books, and part of the Gospels are this way as well, when we start getting into things like the golden calf and the wandering in the wilderness, I mean, these are action-packed scenes. He's telling the story, and, and this is the behavior of people, and we know it's got a purpose, but sometimes to pick out those passages, we've got to look at like a whole generation's behavior, like say wandering in the wilderness, to understand how we can learn from it, right? How we can be obedient to God, whether we should worship idols or not. Spoiler alert, no. Um, but in these little passages in Genesis, I almost say, don't overthink it, because it kind of just tells you. And so a lot of these have a specific purpose. And so I would say, number one, don't overthink it, but also do not – we really have to be careful about reading a story beyond its purpose. And, and I'm not going to say that it can't have greater meaning than that or it can't have other impact. But sometimes we are guilty of sort of pressing the story beyond what its intended purpose is. Well, yeah. Or even um, – We'll, like Wilton, like Wilton's talking about the ark. Um, I've heard a lot of you know questions and debates like, what can, how big was the ark? How did they do this? How did they do this? And then, well, if you go read the story of Noah, at the end it tells you, and this is why God has the rainbow, and He promised He would never do this to man again. And just as a fun fact, did you know almost every ancient civilization has evidence of some sort of flood in their culture's history? Just something to think about. Um, Mm-hmm. Oh, um, well, I just meant specifically the. I mean, everyone's got a creation story, kind of. They try, but I just think it's really interesting that all of the all of the ancient world civilization has either record or a legend or a tradition or some sort of flood myth that they've constructed because, which to me would speak to the idea that the flood truly did cover the old earth as he told Noah. And that ancient civilizations in South America, ancient ones in China, ancient ones in Africa, all have these stories of this great flood that once happened. And I just think that's it's interesting There's to me. There's a point there about the ark. If we all admit God could have made that ark overnight, but he took he waited 100 years. That's true. I hope that everybody would turn around. Well, and he used, he used man to, to do that. Um... <laughs> I guess I'll just pause for a minute and just questions 
thoughts, other other questions or comments just on understanding Genesis? Okay. Well, like I said, I think uh, I think a lot of times we, we just have to be careful because, like I said, especially in Genesis, each of these stories, whether it's about Cain and Abel or it's about uh, the fall or it's about creation or it's about Noah, they have a purpose. And most of the time in Genesis, they will tell you their purpose if you just look for it. But we have to be very careful not pressing those stories beyond their purpose. Um, hmm. Talk a little bit about genealogies in Genesis. So, because like I was saying, there's these, these stories that serve their individual purpose, a lot of times we see these genealogies that sort of connect these stories a little bit to one, one to another. It, it sort of understands, well, how do we just get from Noah to Abram? How do we just get from Seth to Noah? And it, it fills this gap, but... Even with that, I have heard, and I guess I might just be speaking in, uh, against something that you guys haven't heard before, but I have heard people total up the generations in Genesis and say, well, we know that this took this amount of time. And I just, I would caution against that because that doesn't really fit the way the Jewish people thought of generations and genealogies. Um, this, the story is not to do an Ancestry.com on how Abram came from, say, for example, Shem and list all of his descendants. But it's really to try and connect you to people that they knew, to people that they names they would have known, and sort of fill in the gaps between these stories that Moses is, is telling the people. Um, I wanted to talk a little bit about that and sort of the genealogies in Matthew and, and Luke, but we don't really have time to get into it, so I'll save that for next week. Um, Talked about Genesis 11, talked about, let's see here, Genesis 32. We'll, so this is something I was mentioning. Just, this is why I would suggest you've got to be careful how you study Genesis even relative to Exodus through the uh, Deuteronomy. Is the, the timeline's a little jumpy. It seems to be covering a lot of span of time in like two or three pages relative to the Exodus. The purpose of the story is a little bit different than the purpose of what Moses is going to do later when we get the law. And so I guess that's just why we've been talking about, like I said, I, I should have put these slides in a little bit better order. But timeline, Genesis covers a lot, a lot of time relative to Exodus and Deuteronomy. It covers a lot of different patriarchs, what we call patriarchs, a lot of different figures, whereas from Exodus onward, we're going to be pretty much talking about Moses. And we do not really see the law. So again, just understanding context, understanding, okay, we well, call it the law, but is it really, it's not really the law. We don't think of it the way we think of the law. Um, biggest thing I guess I've just like a broken record tonight is consider the cultural context in which that particular book of the Bible is written and this is why it's so important to understand not just the, the words we're reading from the Bible but how that particular part of the Bible came to be in our hands and how it fits in this greater story that God is telling throughout scripture um, questions you guys haven't asked questions that makes me nervous I'm thinking. There's there's two at least two suggestions. Um, a third there's I guess three. Um, 
one, yeah, revelation from God, the way he got the law, the way he got almost everything else he told the people. Um, the other one is that Moses just wrote down what the people kind of already knew, that it was these oral traditions that had existed long before Moses wrote them down, that they all knew these stories. And Moses, being an inspired writer, being uh, in the presence of God and empowered by God, just took to task actually documenting all these stories that were a part of their history already up to that time. Um, and then, of course, some people have suggested it was somebody other than Moses. But that's one of those things. When you read the Bible, you'll be shocked to find out that most of the Bible does not claim an author. And something I always tell people is like, okay, does it change your view of God on who wrote Job? You know, or who wrote the Psalms? Well, most of the Psalms written by David. What about the rest of them? I don't know. Does it change how you view them if they were written by David or Solomon or Solomon's son or you know, Jeroboam? Maybe a little bit if it was like Jeroboam, I guess. But So we, I guess I say that that's a good question to ask. But one of the reasons I don't get too into the, off in the weeds on debates about it is something I go back to is, does this change my view of God or the way I read this passage? Um, that's a good question. That's a good question.